So I want to reflect tonight with you some about uh, the teachings and the practice of compassion. It was really close to my heart. And I actually wanted to start by sharing a little bit of, of my own practice story in terms of this theme. And it was particularly um, inspired by a very short story that Donald told last night about how, and, and I love the story. Every time he tells it, I smile. I have heard it a hundred times uh, because we teach together a lot. And every time I hear it, I smile. And it's when he's in the driver's ed class as a teenager watching the videos and starting to cry. And it's just like, that story opens my heart every time I hear it a hundred times later. So it's interesting when we hear something, anything over and over again, the way it becomes a muse to, to evoke new kinds of insight or information or opening. And that's what it did for me last night when I was listening because I hadn't quite made the connection. Um, so uh, Donald and I have taught this retreat together for, I don't know, 12 years, and we've been teaching retreats together for oh, 15 years, something like that. Lots of retreats. But I had never made the connection between his teenage story of that, that vulnerable heart, that sensitivity, you know, and um, the, the relative truth realities of, of being um, experiencing the identification as a young man and having that experience. And my experience, um, having the identification as a young woman, and it was very different, but there's a connection because he was talking about, oh, that's not necessarily the norm, you know, for his generation or necessarily for masculine conditioning. So for me, uh, it was the polar opposite. I came into this practice so shut down, you know, heart of stone. I was so tough. You actually wouldn't have recognized me. When I think back, I barely recognize myself. It was a, it's like I have a memory of it that's very visceral and real. And even as I just said, I was so tough, I could feel something in my heart area. But that's what it is. It's an echo. It's a memory. So when I came in to um, these teachings and these practices, and I came here to Spirit Rock, I actually started meditating when I was 17 years old way before mindfulness was mainstream, way before teenagers meditated. So I had the experience coming into my first meditation hall that I'm, I'm very aware is not my experience alone, that many of us have experienced something like this, where we walk into a community and for various different reasons we look around, nobody looks like us, the forms and the language aren't anything that we're familiar with and there's this real question is it okay that I'm here? Do I belong here? Where's the safety? Where's the connection? And that was my experience actually coming in here. Very, very young. I feel tremendously blessed because when I came in here, um, my very, very first time, somebody extended kindness to me. And it was a very small thing and I remember it 25 years later. Somebody came up to me, um, a gentleman, two or three times my age. So at 17, he looked ancient. 
He actually is probably about my age now. <laughs> he came up to me and he smiled and, and he said, he said, hello, are you new here? Is this your first time? Because I looked different than everybody and so you sort of stand out. You know? um, and, and I was really shy and shut down and not really sure what I was doing there, but I felt a call and I was like, yeah, I'm new here. It's like, oh, well, you know, where would you like to sit? Do you want to sit on the floor? Do you want to sit on a chair? I think I'll take a chair. Floor looks a little weird, um, and so I t- took a chair, and and he just—it was so simple. He just said, "Welcome." You know? And sometimes I wonder, I really, really wonder, what if he hadn't come up and said hello? I don't know. And I know that I've been that person for somebody else, and I know that many of us have been in my seat, walking in new, and also been the person that reached out beyond that gap of our separateness and just said, hi, I see you, you're here. No. We do that every time we open a door here, every time we help somebody pick up a dropped fork, every time we just give someone a little room or that little smile, even though we're not looking at each other. Hi, I see you. Thank you for being here so I don't have to do this retreat alone. I imagine that a lot. You know, what if we came to a retreat and nobody else came? <laughs> You're just here. You know, they didn't turn on the heat for us or anything. <laughs> the lights are out. No teachings, no Dharma talk, no other socks wandering around. You know, no one to get behind in the food line. It'd be real different. So... When I came in, I was really shut down um, for two main reasons. And actually, neither one of them I had a label for at the time. Our, our understanding has really advanced in the last couple decades around a number of things. So one reason was I was actually in chronic pain. And I didn't know to call it chronic pain. But six months before I started meditating, I had been in a, a serious car accident over on Highway 101. I had an intimate encounter with the, sa- uh, with the sound wall there. You can actually still see the mark of my car <laughs> 25 years later. So um, I sustained an injury. I did not know how to take care of myself. I did not have the support that I needed. And so it started a six-year journey of what I would now call chronic pain. My direct experience was that the body went from feeling young, strong, healthy, um, comfortable. It wasn't as if I was present in it, but you know, it, it was good. And then my experience for the next six years was uncomfortable to painful, always squirming, always trying to get it so that I could just feel okay again and it never quite got there. You know? So that was hard. And I know I'm not the only one. It's why I actually share it. Because if we have bodies and we have a whole life, there's going to be cycles of illness and there's going to be cycles of pain. And sometimes people look at me and they go, oh, young, you must not know. I wish I didn't, but I do. And the other reason was actually a, a real kind of compassion fatigue, which was not a term that existed or that I knew about. But during that period of time, I was in the middle of a decade long process of being the primary caregiver, one of the primary caregivers for my mother, who was very, very ill. 
And um, that ended with her death in my early 20s. Let me just keep it simple and say that was hard. I was a kid. So I grew up with... um, you know, a tremendous amount of privilege in terms of being, uh, you know, being born with uh, an American passport, if you consider that a privilege. Um, But there's privilege associated with that. Um, Growing up in the Bay Area, and that many, uh, many people who grew up in the Bay Area have a certain amount of resources available. And then there were also these difficulties, these real human difficulties. So when I came to this practice, uh, I was told to follow my breath. And I absolutely couldn't do it. I was a complete meditative failure. So if you ever feel like you're a meditative failure, there's probably hope because clearly something happened between then and here. I mean, you don't have to start doubting. Something did happen between then and here. Um, But I really couldn't follow the breath because every time I try to follow the breath, my back would just start aching more and more and more. And the more that I tried to follow the breath, the more it would hurt. So then I try to be with the pain and then the body get exhausted, the mind get exhausted and I say, well, this isn't working and I just wait for the bell to ring so I could go do the walking meditation, which was a great practice for me. So for a lot of us in these retreats, we've got our place where we find our groove. It may be the sitting, it may be the walking. Whichever one it is, maybe the yoga. Whichever one it is, gather your momentum there so they can carry you, you know, through the next cycle that might not be as easy in form. It really helps, and that's what I did. So really early on in my retreat practice, teachers started saying to me, Heather, you should practice metta. And I said, what's metta? They said, well, it's loving kindness. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, you say these wishes over and over. I'm like, wishes, okay, what do you say? They said, well, say something like, uh, say to yourself, may I be protected and safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy and strong? May I live with ease? And I thought, that sounds ridiculous. But I was desperate, so I I went and sat down and tried it. I was sitting really long retreats, uh, you know, like months long retreats at that point, so I needed to do something. So I sat down, I tried it. Hated it. So you're not alone if you've ever, well, how many people here have ever had a relationship with Metta where you did not like it? Just ever. You know, so a lot of us have had that cycle. If you practice metta long enough, absolutely everything will happen. If you practice anything long enough, absolutely everything will happen. And we just go, oh, this chapter's like this, this chapter's like this, this chapter's like this. So I had the I hate metta chapter. And, you know, basically I'd sit down and go, may I be protected and safe? I don't feel safe. May I feel happy? I'm grieving my mother's death. I don't feel happy. Maybe healthy and strong. I can't even remember what that feels like. Maybe at ease? What's ease? I didn't even know what ease was. So again, meditative failure number two. So I started to give up on the whole thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm a meditative failure. And fortunately, I ran into this teacher who sat down with me, listened to my story, and said, you know what? You're really struggling I think you need compassion practice. I still remember what room it was in. It's in Anushka's check-in room, room two. I remember looking that teacher in the eye, my jaw fell open. This was long before we taught compassion on retreats. It didn't used to be taught in public on retreats. It was like the secret practice in the back room. (laughs) And I said, 
tell me more about that. That was my doorway into heart practice. And part of the reason that I share this story is because for, it's not for all of us, our doorway won't be the metta. It doesn't mean we can't practice the metta, but our doorway in where we go, yes, that's where I want to develop the relationship more, could be compassion or joy or equanimity. It doesn't matter. What matters is we know what our doorways are and we walk through with trust, with care, with courage, with sincerity. So compassion. Compassion is the the caring heart, the empathetic heart. It's often described as the heart mind that quivers in response to suffering. So basically when the mind and heart are startled or angry or confused and we're just moving around in the world, it expresses itself as friendly, as warm, as benevolent. And then there's some difficulty. So Sylvia Borstein will say, there's some difficulty. And then she'll go, uh-oh. It's the uh-ohs, okay? So there's some uh-oh inside ourselves, interpersonally, or we're tapping into the pain of this world, this planet. There's uh-oh. And in its wisdom, the heart-mind knows that the expression there is compassion. It knows when it meets joy that the expression is appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. And the equanimity provides the groundedness and the balance and the steadiness to be able to hold the rising joys and sorrows in fullness and in wholeness. So the first night of the retreat, Kanda gave a beautiful metaphor for metta involving the sun uh, that the, the mind and heart of metta is like the sun that sheds its, rain, uh, its rays on all without distinction. So with compassion, we're imagining a great-grandmother tree. And it's full summer, full canopy, warm sun. The tree shades. It provides the coolness of shade to everybody without distinction. And so too, the heart of compassion offers that cooling balm of empathy and of caring. No one left out. So last night, Donald was talking about a few of the, I think you referred to it as the near and far enemies, or did you refer to it as the near and far misses? Do you remember? Um, Near opposites. Ah, near opposites. I love universal translator. If you ever struggle with any of the language that we're using here, and if you do this long enough, you will struggle with something because if we keep going, struggle comes. Star Trek is a great resource, (laughs) okay? I bet you didn't expect I was gonna talk about Star Trek. In fact, I didn't know I was gonna talk about Star Trek. But if you think back to your watching Trek days or you're just aware of it from American culture, you know, they, they've got this technology called Universal Translator. And, you know, it literally, between two so-called alien life forms, you know, humans and an alien life form, and you come into the same galaxy, right? What makes an alien life form an alien life form? It's not human. They're not thinking they're an alien life form, 
They're thinking of humans or an alien life form. So you've got these two forms of life and they come into the, the same system and if they can't communicate, there could be a war. Universal translator. So it translates back and forth to prevent that conflict, that disconnect, that misunderstanding, that war. We can do the same thing inside. You hear some term that doesn't work for you in these Dharma teachings, please. This is a self-empowering practice. Use universal translator and go, that word is totally triggering for me. And I can retranslate it into something that actually invites me in. So we use a lot of different examples and language up here to try to provide a a kind of robust sense of possibility, but we're not going to nail it for every one of you, every moment. Use universal translator. So this teaching I was about to refer to uh, used to be translated into Old English as near enemy and far enemy. Okay. Um, Donald has translated it into near opposite. I've translated it into near miss. So they're not better or worse. And they're all pointing to the same thing. So what are they pointing to? A near miss of compassion traditionally is pity. So um, I, I use kind of, I use my hands to describe this. So if it's a full connect, your hands are holding each other. If it's a near miss, it's close, but not quite. So it's almost compassion. There's some compassion in it, but it's just a little bit of a miss, which means that we're really close to being right there in mature compassion. So the miss of pity is a little bit extra protection of the heart and mind. I over here feel so sorry for you over there. Little extra concrete bunker. So that was the way that I described my heart when I came into Dharma practice. I had a concrete bunker in front of my heart. And that thing, to be perfectly honest with you, it could take a nuclear blast. It was impenetrable. And so much of my journey with heart practice over my first 10 years of training was working with that bunker. It was like at first, um, I loved it and hated it. I loved it because I didn't feel like I could survive without it. I hated it because I knew I couldn't feel anything and that there was so much more. Then I started to get the intuition, oh my goodness, it's protecting this heart. And I started to thank it over and over and over. And I would literally say every time it would come up, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for saving my heart when I didn't have other tools. And sometimes I would physically do what I'm about to do. Sometimes I just do it in my heart and I'd just bring my hands together. I'd be sitting quietly and I'd just bring my hands together and say to myself, bow to that which got me here. Then I'd open my hands, rest in that which I am. So much more than this bunker. But when we go through that journey, uh, it's not a linear journey. We know that. So I wanted to just knock the thing down. Um, But really the process, and it's an archetypal process, I'm sharing it personally because I want to keep my heart close with yours. But I really, um, 
it's like in some ways I experience my own journey as an archetypal journey as well as a personal journey. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, there's just some uh, themes that are recognizable uh, across groups of people. We all have our own expression of it. So it's like, oh, I can't just knock that thing down. It's about like opening up a window. Like, oh, can I feel this pain a little more? Can I have a little more vulnerability here? Keep saying the phrases, keep saying the... Nope, shut it all down. Okay, can I, can I not judge myself? It's all shut down. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for saving me. Keep going with the phrases. You know, and a lot of us know that even when the um, kind of heart-mind so-called is fully open, that that's not even inherently wise 24-7 in this world, on this world's terms. There are times when it's really important to be able to draw a veil and say, actually, this isn't a safe situation. I don't want to just lead from a totally raw, open heart. That's not safe. That's not wise. But then there's this whole dance between concrete bunker and like, I just got smacked 25 times. A big room in between there. This is the journey we're taking here. You go, why am I saying these phrases over and over? It's actually more about this process. And it's a training. So we just keep inclining the mind over and over, direction of benevolence, direction of care, and this whole thing starts to unfold itself and reveal itself. Hmm. So there's an internal process of this. Well, and for me, it's like, you know, you can even try this on right now. I, I kind of like to do little practice sessions within the, um, the Dharma talk, right? So, because it's, it's not just like a top download, it's like an invitation into practice. So please don't change your posture. Your posture's perfect. It's actually very important to learn how to train in a a posture that's not perfectly meditative because a lot of our lives when we need metta and compassion, we're not going to be in some perfect posture. So keep your posture and close your eyes or open your eyes. But for me, when I practice compassion, I'm so grateful I have two hands, you know, because I put one hand on my heart. And you could do this with your attention or you can do it with your hands, your choice. But if, if, if we're closing our eyes, no one's looking. I put one hand on my heart. I put the other hand on my guts. Because for me, compassion practice is the guts of things, you know? Sometimes I just breathe in and out like this, with caring. It's like, oh, I care. I'm just acknowledging the rawness of being human. We don't need to tell ourselves the whole story of all of our difficulties. We've told it a thousand times. We'll tell it a thousand more right now. Just like breathing in and out. Oh, the vulnerability, the rawness, the numbness. Ruth Dennison, one of our great Dharma elders, passed away a couple years ago. She would say, feel the numbness, darling. Feel the numbness. If you've got compassion wishes you know by heart, you drop those in right now. If you don't have ones you know by heart, what I say to myself is, I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. I 
care, I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. So in this moment, there's nothing more to do. Another near miss of compassion is codependence. Just the blessings. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. For me, that means through the caring, may the reactivity with this pain decrease and decrease and disperse and disappear so that I have all my energy available to see, care, and respond. That's it. And so we cycle. We cycle from the internal to the external. We lower reactivity. We refill our reservoir of heartfulness. We gather all of our energy. And then we look out into this world of tremendous difficulty and resiliency. And we say, how can I help? This is one of my favorite compassion inquiries. I've been working with this for um, ever since I received the teaching from His Holiness the Karmapa. Back, when was I there? That teaching was in 2010. So almost a decade now I've been working with this. And so I I spent six months um, practicing and traveling to India in 2010. And and one of many... um, teachers I was privileged to, to have some extensive teachings with was, is His Holiness the Karmapa, a Tibetan tradition. And he's kind of, um, uh, he's, he's next in line actually as spiritual leader um, after the death of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, may he live a long life. So he'll be one of the next leaders and already is one of the next leaders. He's in his early 30s now, he, or mid-30s. He was in his mid-20s when I sat with him. Um, his culture, of course, as we know, is being systematically eradicated. He fled over the Himalayas, like so many others, on foot. So he's a refugee in India. And so this is the teaching He says, we may want to help, but lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and intention must be combined with practicing the paramis, um, the perfections of heart, and underlined favorable conditions are needed. It's all of that. It's our care that we want to help. Can we bring the patience? Can we get out of our idea of me and I know and whatever power that we happen to hold in this world and actually stand there and go, I don't know, but I'm here. I see you. I feel this. I'm not turning away. And when I do turn away, I forgive myself and I come back. And the positive attitude, the perfections, the, um, the integrity, the patience, the loving kindness, the equanimity, the determination. And we can do all that and then we're not in charge. And we sure know that on this retreat, right? How many of you said to yourselves or said to me, 
I'm realizing that I came into this retreat with the expectation of metta like this or this retreat like this, or I thought this sitting was going to be like this. And it's like, no, it's not like this. It's like something else. We're not in charge. It's one thing to talk about letting go, but honestly, we don't need to talk about it. If we're still sitting here in the room, it's like we're just shedding and shedding, letting go, letting go, and letting go is happening. And we can just bring our heartful awareness to it and go, wow, there's another layer. Huh. Oops, that one was hard. Uh-oh. Compassion. Oh, that one was beautiful. Delight. Gratitude. And they just keep shedding. So bringing in compassion to the metta practice itself, yeah? Um, one of the ways I look at this whole practice is whenever there's reactivity, whenever there's struggle, that's coming in and it usually has deep roots. You know, struggle is a fundamental human habit when we're not awake. When we're startled, angry, confused, struggle is there. It's got a very deep root, right? Fortunately, it's not the only deep root. Another deep root I call the deep root of caring. So I've investigated this over the decades. I've been really curious about this. When there's reactivity, when there's habituation, when there's upset, is there always a deep root of caring? If I look deeply enough and closely enough, is there some caring that's fueling that whole mess? So I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm asking you to do your own exploration. For me, I haven't found a single thing that doesn't have a root of caring, even if it's just as simple as the nervous system cares about fundamental survival, so now it's throwing a fit. And I've just said something or done something that I really wish I hadn't. But there's some root of caring. Can we access that and bring in the caring into the reactivity? Uh, another one of my teachers in the Tibetan tradition, Jetsama Tenzin Palmo, uh, one of the, um, actually the, the most senior Western monastic woman on the planet right now. She's, she's been in robes uh, longer than anybody as far as I know, which is amazing. She puts it like this. If we experience something as an obstacle, then it's an obstacle. We take that same thing and experience it as an opportunity, it's an opportunity, full stop. She's super practical that way. She just says it how it is, not a lot of fluff. (laughs) See it as an obstacle, see it as an opportunity. So I thought I'd play around a little bit with um, some of these Donald was exploring some of the pieces where we get caught up and that I would just kind of take it the next few steps or further along in the retreat with the spirit of that we're bringing the compassion to the metta. So while we're practicing with metta wishes and metta muses and things happen, we've named what some of the fundamental things that happen are, right? We get caught up in expectations and attachment around our muses. How come they're not feeling it? How come they're not different? How come dot, dot, dot. Uh, The aversion arises, the fear, the anger, the anxiety, the sleepiness. How many people are less sleepy today than yesterday? Just less often. Ha ha, okay. So now we say to ourselves, it's end of day two of the retreat. 
So when you're sleepy day one of the retreat, what I say to myself when I'm sleepy or restless day one, I go, aha, sleepy. It's day one of the retreat. So notice what isn't there. Sleepy. Oh my gosh, maybe I should take a nap. I wish I'd slept better. You know, that, that cr- um, cracking on the, down the stairs, it woke me up. And maybe I should adjust my posture. And oh man, I can't meditate. Just, it's day one of the retreat. I'm sleepy. Day two of the retreat, less sleepy. It's okay if you're still sleepy. For some people, it's not till day three. You know, everybody's different. Everybody's different. So, you know, we got the restlessness and worry that comes, the doubt that comes, and, you know, you guys have been checking in about all this stuff. So I'll just um, bring in a few more expansions, not in all these areas, because we don't want to be here all night, just in a few of them. So the first one I think is the, the kind of aversion, fear cycles, anxiety cycles, because that's an important one to have a full toolkit of tools for. So first we need to tell the kind of archetypal meta retreat Buddhist bedtime story, because it's almost bedtime. And um, we tell this every single meta retreat. So again, if you've heard it a thousand times, look and see what is it that lights up for you tonight? Where's the insight tonight? Let it be fresh. Once upon a time, in the time of the Buddha, there were a group of monastics who were about to embark on their reigns retreat. So um, before global warming, rains in India, monsoon, you could almost, you could almost like set a calendar on it, you know. And of course, different parts of India, but um, I'm thinking about northern India. Um, Middle of June started, middle of September, it ended. Now, with global warming, that is changing. You know, we are seeing actual changes. We know this. But I'm figuring back then, you could, you know, more, more or less set your calendar on it. So, is midsummer to early fall. So they're getting ready for rains retreat. They needed to find a place to practice where they weren't going to be traveling because to this day, monsoon in, in certain parts of India, um, it's hard to travel. It's really, really raining. <laughs> um, and so they went up into the foothills of the Himalayas. Okay, so the foothills of the Himalayas are 8,000 feet just to give you some perspective. Um, The place where I like to live when I spend time practicing in India is 11,500 feet. It takes about a week to relearn how to breathe up there. It's a different kind of breathing. But the the foothills are about 8,000 feet. The monsoon hits particularly hard there. So they found a village and the village was really happy to take them in and say, hey, I'm happy to have you here for your retreat. We'll provide you with kutis, which are little cabins. We'll provide you with food, medicines, whatever you need. And monks went, great, we've got the place to practice. You know, it's like the equivalent of, I got into the spirit rock retreat, it's so cush. Okay, (laughs) so just a little weave, they had cush conditions. For, for them at that time for what they needed as monastics. And so they started practicing and the Buddha that reigns retreat was training them in concentration practice. So they're doing their concentration practice. Everything was going along fine, dot, 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 until, you know, that's how a story goes, right? Um, there was a problem. 
And the problem was, was that the woods where they were living were inhabited by unseen um, energies. So I'm not asking you to believe in anything. You can hold this story literally or archetypally as you wish. But uh, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a whole world of unseen benevolent forces. These forces, these energies are called devas. Western equivalent kind of angels, not the same, but just similar. And so the devas live there and you know how it is when family comes in on the holidays and they visit you and it's great. And then like they don't leave and they've stayed too long. And then they'd say, oh, actually, I'm not going to move out at all. I'm just going to be here for a season. It gets a little trying. And so for these devas, they thought it was a short visit. And it was not a short visit. It was a three-month visit. So there was a disruption in the energy field, right? So the devas tried all kinds of things as the story goes. Uh, they tried to uh, stink the monastics out you know, create bad smells to get rid of them through bad smells. I always thought that was a really kind of theoretical and interesting one until I had a skunk die under my house. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this is what it was like. Those monks in the forest are getting stinked out of their place of practice. (laughs) So now I understand a little better. Uh, They they tried the kind of um, crack of the, the... You know, if you're backpacking or camping and you hear like a twig break and it's dark in the middle of the night, ah, scare them out. None of these things worked. The concentration of the monastics was too high. Then as the story goes, the devas produced frightening images in the monastics' minds. Okay, that scared them. And the way that... Um, one of the interpretations of the story goes, I've been very interested in the commentaries around this story. So I've done some study. And so they ran down the foothills of the Himalayas, found their teacher who happened to be the Buddha and said, Buddha, Buddha, you know, we can't practice here. It's too stinky. It's too noisy. It's too scary. We can't practice here. It's not a good place to sit. I thought Spirit Rock was going to be great. But in fact, dot, dot, dot. I mean, I won't ask you how many of you have had this. Ha- oh, yeah, you know what I am going to ask you? How many of you have had a moment like that where you're like, I thought Spirit Rock was going to be great. It wasn't like how I thought it was going to be. Just a show of hands. Less hands than I thought, or you're too afraid to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty cush here. Yeah. Got some heavy-duty privilege being here. So let's use it. Let's not wait to wake up at the level we can wake up. This retreat, not another retreat, not when our body's better and our life's better and everything's better. This retreat, let's use what we've got here. Not out of guilt, out of love, out of gratitude. So the Buddha said, hey, it's not a problem. It's the perfect place to practice. And have I got a practice for you? Loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And then the metta sutta flows from there. So they went back up to their cabins, their kutis, they practiced, the devas kept doing their trouble. And if we hold this as our own minds, it's like we're sitting here minding our own business and all of a sudden that memory comes through. Trying to stay with the metaphrases, that memory comes through. 
It's like, oh, uh oh. <laughs> and we can keep going with the wishes sometimes. Sometimes that'll clear it out. Other times, it's really more skillful to put a hand on the heart and guts and go, all right, I care. I'm breathing in and breathing out. Sometimes it's quite upsetting what's coming through or the anxiety starts to rise for some reason. It's like, oh, as we're saying the wishes in between each set of wishes, feel free to take a deeper breath and just say to yourself, there's enough air in here to breathe with what I'm feeling. This is nervous system practice, nervous system metta. So we say a set of wishes, there's another breath where we pause. There's enough air to breathe with this anxiety. May I be protected and safe. Sometimes we even need to open our eyes and actually really make sure that the mind and body are fully here because the reactivity or the anxiety in the system knocked us somewhere else. And we look around. And I know that on one hand we're in noble silence and that we're not like watching each other. But it's really okay when there's upset in the system and it's growing and it's moving up. Energetically it moves up. To open your eyes and just look around and find a color or a view. You can even just try it right now. It's just a very casual thing. We don't look at each other. Just a sense of like, oh, here. I'm here. Instead of telling myself, I know I'm here, I'm in the meditation hall, I'm in Spirit Rock. That's the adult mind. It's not necessarily a compassionate mind. You actually look and let the wisdom of the system let you know that you're here. So here's the key. Everybody try this out. You want to look behind you, even if you think you know what's behind you, and you want to land your eyes on the exits. The nervous system likes to see the exits, just in case. So try it. Don't just take my word for it. It's like, this is safe from the inside. And of course, we don't just do it once. It's like the first time you're mindful of breathing, you go, okay, I I pay attention to breath, now what? You go, okay, I looked at the exit, now what? Repeat. (laughs) This whole training is, um, is really a relentless caring of repetition. It's relentless and it's caring. It's relentless compassion. So some of that stuff really helps with all of that. And so the monastics were uh, doing their loving kindness practice. And through the radiation, right, or doing the radiation practice this afternoon, through the radiation of that benevolence, that goodwill, that including that which is difficult in their practice, it transformed their relationship with the devas. And the very thing that was the obstacle became the opportunity. The devas became the allies. The very thing that almost took them out on the spiritual path transformed into ally. That's why I love this story. That's our journey inside. And then it's our work in the world. Over and over again. So one other um, theme I wanted to touch on of all of the themes is doubt. Because it's the one where car keys are in hand or we've just somehow managed to get the cell phone from the managers and we're calling an SOS and we don't even know how it happened because of the doubt. So it can start really quiet. 
it, it often starts with thoughts like, this isn't working, or I can't do this. And then it grows, right? And then it will, I can't do this. And then we'll move into, maybe I should fiddle with my phrases. Maybe my wishes aren't right. Maybe my muse is too complicated. Maybe it's too hot in here. Maybe I should go wash my socks. And at the point that I have the thought, maybe I should go wash my socks. I go, wait a second. It's day two of the retreat and I brought enough socks. What's going on here? You know, oh, okay. Doubt attack is arising. So going back to what Donald was repeating last night, this piece about recognizing, normalizing, and now we're adding bringing the compassionate spirit to it is really important. I wanted to share with you a a story that hopefully inspires you to really work with the doubt here because the reason that we're working with the doubt here is so that when the doubt comes, when the rubber meets the road in our lives, we really can recognize it, normalize it, have compassion, have tools so that it doesn't impede our energy to be able to respond in this world. Because it's the place where we give up. It's the place that will um, make us start to play small. We can't afford to play small. Don't play small. It's big. The invitation here is to the big. So this story is from a a friend of mine, Julia Butterfly Hill. And Julia Butterfly Hill, you may remember her, she's best known as the young woman in the late 90s who climbed a redwood tree up in Mendocino, Redwood's tree's name is Luna. And she stayed there. Uh, She actually stayed there for, I think, almost two years. And when she went up, she thought she was just going to do a tree sit for like a week or two. So she went up for a week or two and ended up staying because if she had left, that tree in that grove would have been cut down. That's commitment. But it wasn't easy because those of you that remember her story might also remember that she happened to climb up into that tree into one of the worst El Nino seasons that California has ever seen. Now, and Luna was actually up on a ridge. So it was like Pacific Ocean and, and a ridge and then her ridge and Luna and it's just smack, you know. And she's up in a redwood tree by herself. This was before cell phones. Need I say more? Okay. So there was incredible difficulty and at times incredible doubt. And so around the hundredth day in the tree sit, hundred days, how many of you sat a three-month retreat? Couple. Yeah. It's a long time to be by yourself with your own stuff. She, and she didn't really have a teacher to like check in with. You know, actually the monks at Abayagiri Monastery, our, our local monastery, Abayagiri means fearless mountain. And the abbots of Abayagiri Monastery, um, especially Ajahn Pasano, who just retired, um, actually climbed up and snuck in. And you had to sneak in because it was illegal that she was there. And they snuck in and they were able to go up and, and offer her some spiritual guidance. When I talked to Ajahn Pasano about that, it was like he was the one that received. You know, he was so moved by the opportunity 
to be able to go and sit with somebody in presence and witness to that depth of practice and commitment. So it was right in the middle of the winter, El Nino, um, day 100. And here's what she says. Losing my mind from a lack of sleep, food, positive results, and emotional support, I began to feel like my whole being was under attack. I was near the breaking point, unable to fend off the devastating impact of the elements. When I'd get wet, chill would work itself into my very core. My shivers would rack my body for hours, even after I'd dried off and settled into my sleeping bag. She said to herself, I'm soaking wet, I'm cold, and I'm miserable. And then her next question to herself was, man, why am I even here? Any of us that's practiced a long time has had this question arise. No one's left out, it comes up. Why am I even here? My back hurts, these wishes aren't working, I hate my muse, you know, and the Dharma talks are boring. Why am I here? (laughs) So here's the poem that she wrote called Doubting Myself. At moments like this, doubt creeps into the shadows of my mind, seeping through the cracks and crevices, gripping onto everything it can find. I have to listen to everything inside me, including the doubt. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. I must face it, peer deep within it to find what lies below. Behind all subconscious thought, there is some form of truth, twisted sometimes, manipulated possibly to mislead, but real nonetheless. I must open up to the reality, search it for its worth, discard the rest. These are the things that pass through my mind at moments like this. I really sense the realness in this poem. You know, it's not trying to be like flashy, perfectly written poem. Just like that's the heart speaking and that invitation into deep, deep listening that the winter invites us into and that the practice invites us into. So this morning, Donald um, offered us Sylvia Borstein's pith instruction, right? Do you remember what it was? It's all fiddling. Right, this whole and another way of putting that is this whole practice is so creative. So I don't I don't know Donald if we've ever talked about this, but when you said that, I totally smiled because when Sylvia gave me <laughs> the the pith instruction when she was training me to teach metta, um, what she said was, "Don't fiddle too much." <laughs> And I was like, yes, when you put them together, that's absolutely so. It's like, of course we're still teaching this retreat. We gotta put us together, you know? It's like, it's all fiddling. And don't fiddle too much. 
And the doubt can get us to fiddle too much. If we only get all the conditions right in the technique of the practice in the form of our retreat, then we'll be okay. It never works out. So it's actually this sense of going back to, may I trust in the unfolding? You know, I say to myself over and over when I'm starting to doubt the technique or the teachings or the teachers or myself, may I trust in the unfolding? I say to myself, Heather, I love you, keep going. You can say to yourself whatever you want. I'm sharing what I say to inspire you to remember to say your thing to yourself because it clears the environment of the doubt and it calls in the caring and the heart. It's just a weather system. All these hindrances, they're just weather systems. They come and they go. So, closing story. I have to take a breath before this one because it's current and it's close to my heart. when I think about the importance and the power of spending this time in silence and renewal, refilling our reservoirs, practicing active, rigorous, passionate self-care. How important it is. Um, And then the mind that goes, but what about the world? And it's like, it's because the world that we need the silence and refilling the reservoir and that passionate, rigorous self-care so that we can be out there and see and care and respond. Um, so uh, this autumn, you know, less, less than two months ago, actually, uh, here in California, I know not everyone here is from California, but we had a, a series of devastating wildfires They weren't the first wildfires in California and they won't be the last. And one was down Southern California and one was up in Northern California. So I live in the foothills of California, foothills of the Sierra Nevada. So I live at about 3,000 feet. And there, uh, you know, the, the Sierras are a long mountain range here. And, and so, you know, there's these, these huge, huge um, hundreds of thousands of people living in these areas. And, and I'm one of hundreds of thousands, right? And so uh, the biggest series of fires happened in a town called Paradise. Interesting. It's also interesting that they titled this fire Campfire. So we kept referring to campfire, and it was a little bit disorienting because a lot of us have positive associations with campfires, but this huge fire is called campfire. So this fire um, completely destroyed the town of Paradise. The town of Paradise has 30,000 people in it. Um, The town that I live in has 4,000 people in it. The town that you live in has... So it's like a whole town is gone and um, you know, around 40,000 people are displaced, are refugees this winter, just from that one fire. So 
I'm really connected with that area. It's not, um, it's not super close to where I live, but it's not far away either. And I, I go up there a lot. I, I serve people in the Dharma up there. And so when I heard that that fire had gone, I started praying like crazy because I had a really bad feeling. And um, so I was praying like crazy. And then after half a day of that, that wasn't enough. <laughs> and I started emailing and making phone calls and trying to find my people. You know, my people, right? The people that I'm personally connected with. Couldn't find some of them. So it's like that. The worry, the concern, right? I mean, this is why we practice metta. This is why we practice the nervous system. This is why we practice the mindfulness for when it's like that. And then I start getting the calls back. I'm okay. So-and-so doesn't know about their home, you know. Or, I'm okay, but I don't know where my pet is. Uh, I don't know if I've lost my home. I've lost my home. I've lost everything. I don't know where so-and-so is. This process. And it's heavy. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit about the practice of of a student that I'm very close to, I've worked with for a long time. She gave me permission to share. I'm going to change her name for her privacy. I'm going to call her Rose. And so I I talked to her, and when I first called her, she said, you know, we're evacuated, I don't know about my home. And we weren't able to evacuate our dog, Sophie. Okay, so major, major prayers. And then the next call was, our home is gone, and we don't know where Sophie is. And so it was like the home, and the dog, and the friends. And I just said to her, you know, it's like, what do you say? What do you, you know, we've got our, you know, the way that we placate ourselves and others, but like, what do you really say when you love somebody? And they're just like, I just lost everything. She wasn't home when it was time to evacuate, so nothing was taken. And I just said, what do you need? And she said, you know, we need prayers. She's like, I'm okay, but we need prayers up here. Can you pray for us? Can you tell everybody to pray for us? I said, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So I started contacting everybody that I knew and everybody they knew. And I'm like, please pray, please pray. So the prayers started moving. Metta is the Buddhist form of prayer. You know, if you don't like the word prayer, just translate it. But I just need to use that word with the story because that's how the story went. And so after like a day or so, I talked to her again. I'm like, Rose, how are you? What do you need? She's like, I think I'm in shock. I said, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> she said, but you know what? I'm realizing I have so much more, my husband and I, than so many of the people that lost everything. I'm feeling kind of grateful and in shock. I said, okay, okay. Then she contacted me a couple days later. And she said, Heather, Heather, we found Sophie. She's like, we, I went to the pet shelter again. I had given up and I just went back one more time and they had me fill out paperwork one more time and it took forever and I was really impatient. And, you know, but I just did it because I really wanted to see if I could find Sophie and I'm walking out the door and they're walking in with Sophie in their arms. She said, if this dog could talk, the dog had been through the fire, burnt paws, damaged lungs. Sophie's fine now. Vet says full recovery, <laughs> you know. But it was like, whoa, okay. And so then we were talking and she said, Heather, she's like, it's the oddest thing. I've lost absolutely everything and all I feel is grace. 
She's like, all I feel is love. Everybody's coming out of the woodwork. I had no idea how many people loved me. She's like, everybody's showing up. I haven't felt so connected and supported my whole life. And she looked at me and she goes, Heather, do you think I'm doing a spiritual bypass? (laughs) So a spiritual bypass is when we use spiritual ideals to bypass things that we don't want to deal with. That's the simple definition. Okay, and so fair enough question. And I just gave her this huge hug and I said, you know what, Rose? Listen, right now you rest in the grace. This is your gift. You rest in the gratitude and the grace and the feeling of connection. I'll keep an eye on spiritual bypass for you. <laughs> you know, if, if, I'm, if I start to be concerned about it in a few months, I'll let you know. But I think right now it's time to rest in the grace and really feel it. And I mean, she was just buoyant and uplifted. It was incredible to be in her presence. I asked myself the question, I actually asked myself the question when my house burns down. It wasn't an if, which is interesting. That was how it came out as a question. No. So the house goes, will I be able to respond like that? I don't know. I actually don't know. I'm going to keep practicing. Please keep practicing with me. You know, we need each other. And so she's just in this really beautiful space. And so I I said, well, I don't think you're having a spiritual bypass, but you know, do, do do you feel a full range of feelings? And she said, well, I wake up every morning and I just weep into my pillow. I just wake up and weep. And then I get up and do my practices. Oh my gosh, the first thing she said to me when she said, my house is gone. The next sentence was, I miss my Zafu. She lost everything. And the next sentence out of her house was, I miss my Zafu. So the local community gathered her like an entire wardrobe of meditative gear and gave it to her the next week, you know, because it was something we could do. She didn't have a home yet to be able to have pots and pans, but we could give her a Zafu and a shawl and a cushion and a bell, and a Buddha. So I talked to her again, and I said, what's your practice right now, Rose? And she's like, you know, Heather, my practice is really simple. She said, I'm loving myself, and I'm practicing with my nervous system all the time, every day. This is why we do this here. So that when it gets beautiful, and when it gets hard, we're already in the habit of loving ourselves and being in our bodies, and learning how to discharge reactivity. So it's really natural. And it was interesting because really soon after all this happened, her whole orientation shift to looking around at people who had less resources than her who had lost everything, and saying, how can I help? And so her former career was in the Chico schools. She was a social worker, and she retired Uh, in the last couple of years. And so she knows the school system. She knows the deal. And basically, she said, oh my gosh, I'm going to go back to the school. She's like, Heather, there's a thousand kids showing up next Monday who have no homes and no school and no teachers and we have nowhere to put them and they're showing up next Monday. She's like, I'm I'm going, I got to go, you know. And she did. You know, so in between calling insurance for her house, she's in the Chico schools 
with the teachers, with the other social workers, with those kids saying, hey, I went through it too. I'm right here with you. I see you. I'm feeling my feet. I'm taking a breath. I'm wishing myself well. I'm wishing you well. This is real Dharma. It's real life. One of the things I'm seeing these days, no, I'm not the only one seeing them, is that the safety nets of our society and of our institutions um, are developing rather large holes. And that's hard. It's it's painful. And I feel like we fill these gaps with person-to-person kindness. It's like... We need to work with the structures to fill the holes. And as we're doing the long-term work with the structures to fill the holes, it's the person-to-person kindness. From the man who welcomed me so that I felt safe enough to take a whole Dharma path, to Rose going into the schools, even though it would be really easy to just take care of her own stuff. It's like we just look and we go, what do I have to offer? And we don't do it in a way that drains our own reservoir so that we fall apart with compassion fatigue. Then we're no good to anybody, you know? Just like simple things. And if we're all doing them, then it's our hearts and our hands that are filling those holes while we do the long-term work in our institutions, in our society. I have so much appreciation and respect for each of your journeys in doing that work. So what if we ended with a little gratitude practice? It's like gratitude isn't avoiding anything. Gratitude is remembering what is available even within what isn't available. And, And Rose has really shown me that in a beautiful way this last couple months, you know. Instead of some formal thing, I would just like to invite you to call to heart one thing that you're genuinely grateful for and really breathe it in and out of your heart. And when you feel ready, it would be really wonderful if some of us would actually say out loud that thing we're grateful for so that everyone around us can hear it and smile and shared gratitude. Let's do that.
for the land and the animals that walk on it and fly. for the kindness in the world. Yeah. So just feeling any available uplift or smile or connection. There may be plenty more happening than that, but just really feeling into the beauty of this heart and mind of gratitude. Thank you for your practice. I love you. Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.